2022. And when you click on an article, it takes you to a user's website or somebody's website, which you're trying to read. And then all of a sudden you're bombarded with pop-ups for sign up for my email newsletter, a cookie privacy notice, and then also a chat box. These are all the ways that you are annoying your audience before they even get a chance to read what they came to your site to read. That's our main topic for today's episode of Cyberly. And let's go ahead and welcome you into another episode. I'm your host, Blythe Brumleave. And on this show, we cover B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And like I said, our first topic is going to be how to stop annoying your website users for a modern day experience in order to create that pathway to conversion, which is what any website owner would want. Then later on in the show, we are going to talk to Lorena Carmego, and she is uh, the CEO of Pearl Transport. And she joins the show to talk about building her brand with an intentional focus. And then also talking about medical deliveries and medical courier delivery and all the intricacies that go along with that line of shipping. And then later on in the show, we're going to be talking with Eric Huberman. He is the CEO of Hawk Media and also the author of the book, The Hawk Method. And he's going to be breaking down what it kind of looks like for a business to outsource their marketing to another company, especially as an outsourced CMO. That's what their specialty is. So we're going to talk about all of those different topics. But first, let's talk about how to stop annoying your website visitors. Because from my lens, I have been building sites online since 2007. And it's been wild to sort of watch the evolution of the website experience into what it involves with today. So there's all these different privacy, uh, the, the different privacy notices and uh, ways to try to entice the visitors of your website to make some kind of a conversion, follow you on social media, sign up for your email newsletter. Uh, but most of these websites are, it's come a long way to make them mobile friendly to load in under 10 seconds. It probably should be cut in half. Three to five seconds is really what you want to aim for. But if we can get it under 10 seconds for the majority of websites, then that is a a huge goal that we would have not have seen 10 years ago on the web. And then there's also, you should have some way of focusing on on how that user should be able to communicate with you as the site owner directly, filling out a contact form and they follow you on social media. These are all different evolutions that have happened since I've been building sites online in 2007. But nowadays, it's too many features. So let's talk about all of the ways that you're probably annoying your visitors when they come to your website and then the things that you should do instead. Because in reality, you have, with everybody's shortened attention spans, you have about three seconds in order to get that person's attention span locked in on what you want them to do. And so when you're bombarding them with a bunch of different notifications, the second they arrive, you're deviating from the very thing that you want the visitor to do in the first place. So let's go ahead. If you're doing any of these things, Let's break down some things that you should not be doing because I thought this tweet that came from Andy Budd on a typical website visit in 2022 was hilarious because it's indicative of exactly what a lot of folks experience online as soon as they arrive to a website. The first one is figure out how to decline all but essential cookies. The second one is close the support widget asking if you need help. Then the third option is stop the autoplay video. The fourth option is close the subscribe to our newsletter pop-up. And then five, try to remember why I came here in the first place. So a few of these that really stick out to me and 
they're more of my pet peeves as soon as I arrive on a site. And I, for just from experience of putting these on other people's sites, you know, just trying to point you in the right direction of which of these that you should actually have on your site and which ones you don't need to have on your site and which ones you can put on your site in a slightly different way. So that first, there, that really that second one that we talked about was close the support widget asking if I need help. These are typically seen in chatbots that are on a variety of different websites. Really, the only big use case for them are some of the bigger retailers, some of the bigger companies like an AT&T if you're reaching out for support on your bill or or another, you know, maybe e-commerce company, a larger e-commerce company like an Amazon where you're ordering frequently from them. That's where a chat bot makes sense. But if you notice on a lot of those different sites, they don't have the chat box as a pop-up immediately when you arrive on their site. They have it tucked away under their customer support section as an option in order to reach out to their customer support. So you can either call, you can either email, you can fill out a form, or you can chat with someone immediately. That's the more appropriate way to take this. Now, I will say that I have expressed my hatred of chat boxes uh, or chat box, really chat features on any website in the past. And what I have heard from other logistics professionals is that they use the chat box for their website as content ideas. So usually when somebody comes to their site, they'll enter in something into the chat box and they, it's, I don't know if they actually have somebody that's monitoring the chat 24-7. They highly doubt they probably do. But he mentioned that what he does is that he takes those, whatever is submitted into the chat box and uses it as content inspiration for the future. I think that that's definitely a good use case. But you can also accomplish this by just adding a search feature to your site and then tracking what users are searching for on the site. That's personally what I do. I hate chat boxes, especially if you work in any kind of like logistic sales or, or at a 3PL, 4PL, any of those things. Because what happens is that if you add this to your site, then you have to have somebody from your customer service team, especially in the, the brokerage floor area, that has to sign into that chat box too. And they have to actively be assigned to use it in order to answer whoever is submitting questions. You know, where's my load? Uh, can, can I get a quote on this shipment? You have to have somebody that's actually monitoring that chat box in order for it to be worth anything. Otherwise, you're just annoying your visitors with another pop-up, something that they have to X off of before they actually see what they want to see. So that's why I'm anti-chat box. So then let's go into the next one which is stop the auto-playing video. That was another one that was mentioned on here. And I don't know why in 2022, we have videos and audio that immediately auto-play whenever you arrive to a site. It doesn't, it's completely annoying. It's completely unnecessary. And it, I, I don't really know of a really good use case for this to actually happen. You should actually give that control over to your users in order to play a video. Otherwise, what they're doing is when they arrive on the site, they're searching for wherever the sound is coming from. And if you're like me, you're just going to mute the tab and just not worry about where the sound is coming from. So you're you're getting artificial plays and artificial listens on something that is annoying your users. And then the fourth option that he talked about, close the subscribe to our newsletter pop-up. I cannot stress this enough. Stop asking users to sign up for your content email newsletter the second they arrive on their site. It's it doesn't do anything except for annoy your visitors. Now, if you want to create a pop-up that shows on an exit intent. And now what that means is as there's certain email software that when you're on a website, it won't show the email sign up right away. 
what you'll do is they'll hop, the tracking software will hop, will notice the different mouse movements. So if the mouse movement goes in the direction that somebody is going to X off of that page, then the pop-up newsletter comes up. Sign up for a newsletter before you lose that visitor. I have heard and seen good conversion metrics on that particular use case. But if you're serving up a pop-up the second someone arrives or within a few seconds of someone arrives, you haven't even given them a chance to digest the content that they came there to see. So that's another way that you're annoying your audience. And then it just leads to the last one that was mentioned on that tweet is that this person, after all that they've gotten, they've out of all of the different pop-ups that you've shown them, they try to remember why they were on your site to begin with. And so these are just a few different things of of how you're annoying website users. And so let's talk about a few things that you should be adding to your site. And the first thing is if you're selling a product, whether it's tangible or intangible, if it's a digital product or if it's a service, you don't make the mistake of not listing a price on your site you want to be able to pre-qualify all of the users that are coming to your site. And if your product, let's say your product or your service is thousands of dollars, do you really want to be attracting small business owners to your site and then having your sales team waste time on sales calls with them and knowing that it's completely out of their budget? Pre-qualify them by adding the price to your site. And if it's a variable price, you can always list that this price, you know, for this product or this service starts at XYZ. And then that way you are pre-qualifying anybody that comes to the site in order to, to not waste your sales team time. And that's the last thing you would want them to do is to spend a lot of time on having these calls and these conversations with folks who just don't, they simply don't have it in their budget. So let them know ahead of time of where this pricing is starting out or just the direct price of what you're offering. You'd be surprised at how often folks will just simply, if they see the price already and the option to buy it, if they are ready to buy, they will make that purchase directly on your site. I know this from personal experience of the products that I have on my site. Some of them are priced fairly high for what I, I would I would consider as a high price, but the value is there and I've communicated the value of that particular product and they buy it. They buy it all right directly on the site, never booking a meeting, never having a call. So I think that that is where a lot of folks are messing up by not putting pricing on their site. I would also, this is one of the best things that you can add to your site. And I don't know why more companies are not doing this, but add a field to your forms. On your website form, you have to add a field that says, how did you hear about us? And the reason you want to do this is because most software, especially marketing software, attribution software is incorrect whenever they tell you about where a lead comes from or where a conversion is coming from. Nine times out of 10, somebody is going to find out about your company, go to Google, search your company name, and then they're going to convert that way. An attribution report would tell you that that conversion came from organic search. But if you add this field to your forms, especially during the purchase uh, purchase options or book a demo options or book a meeting with our team options, if you add that form, add it in as a free text field, make it required. It does not diminish the amount of people who will convert on that form. If they're ready to buy one little form, one little box on the form is not going to stop them from converting. You add it as a free text form, meaning you're not going to put a drop down. You're not going to put a checkbox. You're going to make sure that somebody can freely type in exactly where they heard about your company and how they came to make a conversion on your site. It's the most powerful thing free thing that you can add to your site. It would take a developer 
15 minutes to add to it. And the enormous amount of feedback and information that you get from it is invaluable. I cannot stress this enough. I did an entire segment on it in a previous show. Check the show notes if you're listening on the podcast format where you can listen to that particular episode that talks about this study that has gone into how did you hear about us? It's the simplest thing that you can add to your website. And it's so, so insanely powerful. Few more tips before we get into our first interview. Your about us page is more important than you think. On my data, on my clients' data, and just general data that I see online, the about us page is the second most trafficked page on your site. So a visitor is arriving to your site, maybe they don't know about you, maybe they come in through the homepage, maybe they come in through a podcast or a blog article or you know an ebook, um, you know, whatever kind of offering that you have online, they're coming to your site and then they're going to your about us page next because they want to know a little bit about you and who they possibly could be doing business with. So make sure that that About Us page tells a good story. Then you have different ways to follow someone. It's also a good place to add an email subscribe option on that page as well, just in case they're not ready to make that formal commitment to your business, but they want to hear more. So that next step for them is they're checking out your About Us page. They see you're active on social media. So either they're going to follow you on social media or they will sign up for your email newsletter. So that is a good one. And also, Less is more. I am learning this the hard way. As a content-heavy website, I feel like I my own personal website, Digital Dispatch, is one that I have so much content that it's almost I feel like it's almost overwhelming for the audience whenever they arrive to the site. And this is particularly sure or particularly true for a lot of other companies, especially if you're content heavy. If you're not content heavy, then you don't have to worry necessarily about this. But I would always suggest that less is more because remember going back to the first thing that we talked about, you want to make sure that that pathway to conversion is very simple fifth grade simple. And that that way, when somebody comes to your site, they learn a little bit more about you. And then that pathway to conversion, whether to sign up for an email newsletter or to follow you on social media is made crystal clear. And then also that primary conversion that is the real moneymaker, book a demo, book a sales meeting with us. Those are the primary conversions that you want to make sure that that is fifth grade simple for all of the visitors that come to your site. And then for God's sakes, test the form on your site. You want to make sure that you have a proper functioning forms because you've spent all of this hard work. You spent all of this time for somebody to arrive to your site. You're not annoying them. They're ready to convert. And then they go to the form and the form doesn't work. So it, it just make sure that you are regularly secret shopping your own site. Make sure you're, re, you're, you're secret shopping your own mobile experience. That's another big one because a lot of times your, your website is checked in a desktop environment. Whereas these, there are mistakes that happen or layout decisions that are made with a desktop in mind that is, doesn't necessarily translate to the mobile experience. So make sure that you are not only secret shopping your website forms, but also secret shopping the mobile experience of your own website and seeing if there's some tweaks that you can make there in order to make the transition from having someone become a visitor to having somebody follow you on social media and then ultimately, hopefully become a customer. So those are all of my tips on treating your website as a conversion metric and also as a sales tool. Your website can really be that final sort of nail in the coffin for your sales team in order to answer all of the questions that a prospect may have before they actually decide to do business with you or decide to book a meeting with you. So use your website as a sales tool and follow all the rest of those tips and you will stop annoying your audience. So let's go ahead and bring in our first guest because 
as I talk about our, our, our next guest, she is one that I have admired for a long time. I, when I first got on, you know, sort of Instagram with a logistics mindset, you know, a handful of years ago, Pearl Trans is one of the first accounts that I followed on Instagram because I just loved their branding. I loved their look. They have a really clean, just sort of a look that is inspiring to me. It's a lot of purple in their branding. As you can tell, I am a fan of purple. I have it all decked out head to toe today. Um, but let's go ahead and bring on Lorena. She is the CEO and founder of Pearl Trans. Lorena, welcome into the show. Hi, Floyd. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. First question, did you watch Moon Knight already? Yes, it is so good. I'm yes. very excited for this series. I was just telling Isaiah, uh, yeah, I think this is going to be uh, one of my favorites for this year. And, you know, just overall MCU. Yeah, likewise, I, I think it's one of those shows that it really it, the, it was the best first episode. And we it, Isaiah and along with the other production crew, shout out to them, because we usually talk about all these shows right before we come on for Cyberly. But it, they, I think they said that it was the highest rated Marvel show on Disney Plus so far. So big fans already. Now, for, for you, Lorena, going back to you and your business, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved with the lo- with the logistics industry? What was sort of the catalyst for you for, for getting into this industry? Well, <clears throat> you know, kind of like uh, I feel like everybody else that I've met in the industry where no one, you know, when they're little, you ask them, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? No one really says logistics specialist. Um, it just happened for me. Um, I was looking for a part-time job. I was in college pursuing a mechanical engineering degree, and I had to get a job. Um, so I applied for a company, and, you know, it was just to answer phones. I really didn't know what type of company it was. And so it opened up a whole new world for me. I just, I fell in love with the type of customers that we worked with and just the way that our services facilitated their operations. So uh, eventually I started taking other business courses, but then eventually dropped out of school and just started from customer service, went to dispatch, and then later on to become the VP of operations. And then a few years after that, the company had to shut down. So that's when I had the opportunity to venture out on my own and start Pearl. Oh, I love that story. I didn't know that. The, I mean, I'm sorry that the company closed down, but that's, I mean, that side note, that's sort of a, a similar trajectory for me. I started off in logistics and worked for that company for five years and then they shut down. And that's when I started up, you know, the, the digital dispatch operations where, you know, it leads us all, all those pathways lead here. So, so tell me a little bit about how you started up with, with, with just the Pearl Trans brand, because that's what really sort of stood out to me the most with your company. Yeah, so um, when I started Pearl, I mean, everything happened within a few months. So I just needed a logo to just slap on our letterhead and our flyer just to let people know we were open for business. So I picked purple because it was my favorite color. So it was just, okay, I want purple. I want our brand to represent my favorite color. And it's actually interesting um, because I know a couple companies, when they start their company, they do a whole brand audit and, you know, each color has to represent something, but we really didn't have the time or the resources to do that. But I'm currently taking a business development program 
And one of the assignments was to you asking, what do your colors represent? And one of the examples that the facilitator mentioned is how some people pick blue because it conveys trust. So what I did was I just started Googling, you know, what purple could represent. And one of the representations that most resonated with me was that it conveys creativity. And that's a requirement in logistics. You are coming up with creative solutions for your customers. They call you, they need something delivered from point A to point B. And then it's up to you to see what's the quickest way. What's at stake? Is it cost? Is it speed? You know, uh, do you want to drive it? Or if it's three to 400 miles, you may think, okay, let's fly it. But what's the flight schedule look like? Recovery time, lockout time. Uh, you know, all of that involved. Of course, you know, there's now technology in place where you don't have to do all that thinking. It kind of takes the fun away from it. But your creativity is required in logistics. So that's why in retrospect, I'm really glad that I picked purple because it does reflect the creativity that we have externally, the services we provide our customers, but everything that we do inside Pearl. I love that. That's such a great brand story. And I, I mean, it just, it makes a lot of sense because that was what I, the color attracted me initially. And then now the story behind it, um, it just makes it so much more appealing. Now, when you're speaking about your, your logistics offerings, you, you guys specialize in courier services. How is How does courier services fit into, I guess, the larger logistics ecosystem? Why did you choose to focus in that area? So um, I picked uh, career because uh, that's well, that's pretty much what we were doing. And there, I mean, there's a, a big need. I know that you, you see big trucks on the freeway. So couriers are a little more incognito <laughs> of what we do, but um, they're still a very important part of the supply chain because it's the last mile of the delivery. Um, the reason why, uh, you know, trucking companies may even use our services is because sometimes it's cheaper to pay that cross-stocking fee for a pallet and then have a, a van deliver it. Or it even helps optimize a truck's route because out of the 50 stops that a truck may have, he may have to go into the city to drop off two or three of them, which totally deviates him from the route. So it's cheaper and more effective for them to just drop it off at a warehouse and, you know, just have a career deliver it. Or in some cases, because we're predominantly in L.A., um, there's uh, restrictions on the size and weight of the vehicle that could go into certain neighborhoods. Like we have a customer that uses our services. Um, her customer's facility is on a hill. So, I mean, it would be easier if a 24-foot bobtail could just drop off the pallets. You would think it's just simpler, but she uses our services to break down the pallets and then deliver the loose boxes because a truck cannot go in through that narrow street. So you're, you're finding solutions with creativity using, you know, already established methods, which I love. And, and then there's another aspect of your business where it's, it's medical deliveries. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of the intricacies around medical deliveries? Sure. So when people think of like healthcare supply chain, you know, they see it as a vertical, but really within the medical vertical, there's so many other items that we deliver. You know, you deliver medical equipment, specimens, 
organs, um, you know, pharmaceuticals and everything in between. So um, what we specialize in is uh, like, for example, for the VA clinics in Northern California, we deliver medical equipment. So those surgical instruments that they use at the clinics, we make sure that we transport them between the processing lab and the clinic and our drivers do that back and forth throughout the day to make sure that not only the doctor has enough um, enough inventory so as to not cancel any patient appointments, but also still um, meet OSHA regulations where the surgical instruments aren't sitting for more than four hours because then there's certain corrosion and then there's certain regulations there where those instruments decay and then you know, could no longer be used. Um, a big part of our business is also delivering specimens. So obviously, you know, COVID samples, um, but also a large part of our business is delivering fertility specimens. So we deliver frozen embryos, sperm, eggs, and with that, you know, there's no messing around. That has to be maintained at a certain temperature and it has to be taken from point A to point B directly. There's a strict chain of custody because of what's at stake. Oh, wow. I didn't, I wouldn't have even think. So is your team like boxing? I don't want to say even like boxing these, you know, specimens up. But when it comes to like, you know, fertility treatments and things like that. What kind of containers is that going? Are you guys handling that or is the medical facility handling that and you guys are just, you know, picking it up and, and, and dropping it off? Yeah, no, we, uh, we're not a lab. So we make that clear to the patients that uh, work with us directly. Um, the facilities um, provi- usually provide their own liquid nitrogen tank. Mm-hmm. If not, oh, wow. uh, we also have a partner that we work with. And but because it's liquid nitrogen, there are certain regulations where it has to be kept upright because of the liquid nitrogen spills then um, it just reduces um, because you have to keep it at like minus 165 degrees, but it only holds that temperature for a certain time. And if you were to spill the liquid nitrogen, it further decreases that time frame of, you know, and you don't, you you cannot have any of these, uh, any of these specimens spoil because, you know, that's the future family right there. Oh yeah. I I mean, it's, it's, crazy to even think about, you know, the, the, I guess the, all of the I, just implications of what you're shipping and certain modes of shipments and, and how it can affect the lives of so many other people. It's, it's wild to think about. So it, it, thank you for breaking that down for us. And, and it's sort of shifting gears a little bit. You, you mentioned in our pre-show document that your team has benefited from you serving on a nonprofit board. And you said that business owners should serve on a nonprofit board. And you do, you currently do so for customized logistics and the delivery association saying that when you're the boss of your company, people may be scared of telling you what, uh, what you should know. And that being on a board has humbled you. How do you think that being on a board has changed your business and how you operate that business? Yes. So I really believe that every business owner should serve, you know, at some point at a, on a nonprofit board. 
um, because, you know, for the greater good, but also because it really, I think that's where it really tests you on what kind of leader you are. So in the workplace, you know, when you have your business, you want to make it an atmosphere where people are so open to share their ideas and maybe even question your thought process because maybe they have like, they're, they're seeing things a different way because that's, that's the whole dynamic of working on a team. But there may be some employees because you're the boss, they may not, you know, want to question you or may not want to, may be scared of, you know, sharing some input. But when you're working with a nonprofit board, everyone there is a volunteer and there's a lot of strong personalities or there can be a lot of strong personalities. So that's when it kind of toughens you up and it humbles you in a way because you may think you have a great idea, but there are other ideas that may be better than yours or there's other ways of seeing things and you may not be able to see that within your business. So I feel like in a way serving, you know, it does take some hours from my from my day serving, but the rewards are just so much greater because it just it just helps you build character. Something that you just, you know, you can't go to a class and learn. It just puts you in situations where you just it just it just humbles you and you grow as a person and as a leader. And as you're talking about your leadership skills and how, you know, serving on the board has helped you within the own business or within your own business, let's talk a little bit about your business because you you feature a lot of women in your social media and it's evident that you, you focus on it from a hiring perspective. Now, we don't typically see a predominantly female-focused logistics company. And I think you're, you're definitely the leading example of that. Was it a conscious decision for you to focus on hiring women or did it sort of just happen for you? Yeah, I actually hadn't noticed that until you mentioned it. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. It's just women are just you know, uh, such an important part of our of our business. The majority of our operations team is female. Um, the majority of our driver fleet are still male, though. Um, when you think of diversity, it's not just like, oh, we just want women or we just want minorities. Diversity means a mix of people. So, um, yeah, by no ways do I want, you know, to bash men because men yeah, have been very important in my professional career in logistics. But um, it just kind of baffles me sometimes how, you know, why there aren't more women in the industry in the sense that women just have these natural qualities that are so important in logistics, like, you know, like the video um, that we created, you know, women are natural multitaskers. Women, we're used to working with limited resources. And look how important that was, like during the pandemic, all these capacity constraints, you know, women see things a little more differently. And that's why the industry needs more women to help strengthen everything that we're already doing. Love that. Love that statement. All right, all right Lorena, as we close out the show, what's next for you? What's next for Pearl? Besides watching more episodes of Moon Knight, what do you got on the docket? So uh, one of the things we've been focusing on these last couple years is just automation. Um, we've uh, we've partnered up with a couple software providers who want to 
uh, we it streamlines the way we onboard drivers, we onboard customers, but we really are looking at internally what other systems we could we could streamline. And also externally, when working with our clients, we're now working really close with our TMS provider in setting up APIs just so that, you know, our customers have the information that they need. It can't be set enough, you know, how now, you know, pre pen or, you know, well, we're still in a pandemic, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, but uh, real-time visibility is now, it's, it's not just a feature anymore. It's now a requirement. So we want to make sure that we're providing that for our clients so that then they have the information that they need. Love it. I love the message. I love the creativity. I love the approach. Everything about you, Lorena. Glad we finally were able to get you on the show. Where can folks follow more of your of your work and Pearl's work? Sure. Uh, you could visit us at uh, pearltrans.com and you could follow me on Twitter at Licious, where I don't really post about logistics. I was looking through my feed. It's mostly reviewing shows, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll change the content. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I think people are, you know, when they're checking social media, they're trying to get away from work. So that that's a, I think that that's a good thing. So thank you, Lorena. We'll, we'll put all those in the show notes so people can make it super easy for to give you and the company a follow because big fan over here. So I hope other folks are, are, are feeling the same, which I'm sure they will. So thank you, Lorena. Okay. Thank you, Blythe. Absolutely. Awesome interview. What a, what a great conversation. I love hearing the creativity behind different brands and, and hers is is no stranger to creativity. Like I said, it was what initially drew me in to her company and then eventually having her on the show because I mean, it's, it's a great thing to watch somebody build up their company in an online space and then be able to talk to them about it. And speaking of building up your company in an online space, let's go ahead and go to our next guest, Eric Huberman. He is the CEO of Hawk Media. He's thought leader, author also of the Hawk Method. So welcome in, Eric, to the show. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I, I usually like to start off interviews with marketers on asking them, what is the most annoying thing in marketing today? Most annoying thing, I would say, I would say what's probably annoying most people is uh, the changes with Facebook. So many people rely on mm -hmm. Facebook and now Facebook can only track a seven day window on their advertisements to how it performs. And so almost no marketing performs within seven days. So it's just completely under reporting. So everyone that's trying to manage their marketing through Facebook is just seeing bad data. Yeah, I, I feel for the agencies out there that strictly focus on just Facebook ads because yeah. um, they're they're probably feeling a, a little bit of pain right about now and for the last several months and probably for the foreseeable future. But let's get a, yeah. a little bit of insight on onto who Eric is. How did you you know sort of get involved with marketing and then start up you know one of the more successful companies in in all of marketing agencies? Thank you. Um, yeah, it, funny enough, I made fun of marketing majors in college, and I'm actually going back to my college to speak at three of the marketing classes uh, next week. But uh, I had no interest in it. I was uh, a business management major, which really wasn't any better. But uh, I was going into real estate, and I went into real estate exactly a week to the day before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and the whole banking industry collapsed oh, wow. in 2008. And yeah, made no made $350 that year, first year out of college, living in LA, which is not enough to pay your bills. So started scrambling and started an online music company and quickly realized that was my first online business and then had two e-commerce companies after that. And all three, it was easy to fulfill the actual operational side of the business and the product, but to uh, 
to get customers was really the difficult part and the proactive nature of marketing. And so I started focusing on it. And so after you know, about five, six years of building my own e-com businesses and internet businesses, I realized I had a knack for it and had a ton of experience because I'd done it a lot more than full-time for five years and started advising consulting for other brands on how to take advantage of that. Realized how broken the marketing industry was. And so created Hawk with the idea of creating accessibility to great marketing, making it easy and nimble and flexible to work with amazing talent, amazing marketers. And, you know, another way of putting it is Fortune 500 marketing for the masses. And that's how we started out. And we started with seven people around a little conference table. And now we're about 350 people. Uh, we just announced we opened our first office in Europe. We have a team in China and Philippines and Canada, all over the US. And um, I've managed marketing for over 3,500 brands at this point. So it's been fun. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, well, how did you know from sort of an... Did you know early on that you wanted to start you know, a, a larger company or did you kind of no. were pushed in that way? So you, you wanted to stay small and then it just sort of came up on you? It was neither. I was open. Uh, I started... When I started building Hawk, I actually thought it was just a stepping stone to launching my next brand. And so I built a little team, was helping some other companies while I figured... And I was going to launch a tea company, actually, was the original plan. And then, which was funny because I don't even drink tea. I just thought there was an opportunity in the space. <laughs> um, but I, I quickly, through doing that, started seeing how much what we were doing was needed. And so after a few months of working with my small team and working with our clients, I went, hey, there's probably some room. So we initially had like a four-year plan of how to scale it to be a real business. But that plan had nowhere near the, what we've achieved at this point. And it took me probably after that four-year plan, which we did execute on really well, it took me probably another couple of years to really figure out what the next steps would be. And those were a couple of weird years, but then we got back on track and yeah, really have figured out where we see ourselves in the market and kind of the vision for the company. And speaking of that vision, you you recently just penned a book called The Hawk Method, and and you really talked yeah. about sort of the, I yeah. guess, the, from an eagle eye perspective. Yes, that book. I've seen it in a couple of different interviews now with doing research for for this show. And and yeah. you you talk about how there's like three different principles within the book that most companies should follow. Can you sort of give us a you know an eagle eye view of what those principles yeah. are? No problem. Uh, yeah. So basically, the idea is there's three. Uh, pillars of marketing and kind of think of it as a tripod. If you don't do all three of these things, the entire thing topples over and that's how you build a marketing strategy. So number one is awareness. So what do you do to create new awareness for your product or service, whether it's advertising, uh, word of mouth, PR, the different things you can do to actually build awareness for your brand. And then after you build that awareness, there's this period between when they know you exist, when they actually buy called a purchase cycle. And a lot of people miss that. A lot of people that don't understand marketing, including a lot of marketers, miss the idea of this purchase cycle or consideration period. And during that period, you really have to do a lot to get someone to buy. And so from that point of awareness to the point of buy purchasing, we call it nurturing. And it's all the things you do to keep them involved and keep them engaged so that during that period, they buy. And that period can be between three weeks and three months or even more. It's usually not much faster than that. And so it's really important to do a lot in that period, as well as what you do after they buy to keep them coming back and keep increasing that lifetime value of your customer. And the last piece is trust synonymous with brand. And early on, when you're a new company, building trust has to do with third-party validation, things like testimonials, reviews, PR, influencer marketing, endorsement deals, things where you're borrowing trust from someone else that is trusted. And then over time, through delivering consistently, you can build uh, that trust with people and that becomes your brand. So whatever you deliver, good or bad, becomes your brand. And that's where third-party validation doesn't matter as much. And so when you're talking about these three principles, it, it sort of goes back to, you know, the, the storytelling aspect of, of different companies and different founders. 
a lot of times it's really difficult to pull that story out of these founders or out of these these different brands. How do you get that out of them? Yeah, it. I mean, we do it a lot. So it's, you know, in terms of we really, we just ask a lot of questions is really the key mm-hmm. to it and trying to get them to a point. Like I'd say everybody can explain their business in five minutes. It's can you explain it in a sentence? That's where we see the mm-hmm. biggest challenge and, the, and the, one of the most important things because the problem is, is not like, yeah, if you have time to go explain your company to everyone you meet and you have five minutes of everyone's time, then sure, yeah, that can be your pitch. Nobody has that though. And the biggest driver of business is still word of mouth. And so you have to make it really easy for other people to articulate what your company does. And so you want to give them that sentence and tee it up for them so they find it easy to talk about you. Because if they feel awkward talking about it, they're not going to do it. But if you can make it easy, then they will. Now, when most businesses where they need help the most, it, what what does that aspect look like? Because you've been building, you know, for you said yourself, you know, 3,500 brands now. Where do most businesses need marketing help? So tactically, it's all over the board. It just depends. Like it, different businesses have different capabilities. Different businesses have it easier in different sides of things. But what I do see is how to read marketing. That's really where I see people struggle a lot. They, I mentioned it with the Facebook challenge. Like they're, the majority of people are still using Facebook ads and managing them through the Facebook platform and thinking that that data is what they should be managing by, which means the majority of people are really hurting themselves with marketing. And so, because they're making decisions on inaccurate data. And so that understanding of what you need to be looking at and the nuance of how that works and actually, you know, really measuring your marketing properly so you know how to grow your business, that's the uh, difficult part that we have to help a lot of people. And frankly, we have to almost debate it with clients a lot of times because they've been taught some way of, some method of measuring that's completely wrong. And we, we, we have that friction quite a bit where it's like, that isn't how your business is actually going to grow. And this way of managing marketing is not going to help you. And so we, we run into that a lot. It, it kind of sucks, I think, for a lot of these business owners because maybe they they sign up for a platform and they take all the training right. and then to find out, well, yep. everything that I've invested is now down the drain. So when a even business Facebook, gets which, to... Oh, sorry. Right. I, I was, well, I was just going to say, even Facebook you, right now, what they're saying to fix the issues that came up. And what happened was iOS stopped letting them track all the things they used to track. So they don't have as much data. And they're giving people these fixes like, oh, well, if you get creative with this and you tweak that, and they're giving them these like complex ways to fix it where it's like, no, guys, just get a better tracking system so you can track it outside of Facebook and you'll be fine. Like this is way not... the, the What people forget is when Facebook changes their platform, their algorithm or when Google changes their algorithm, et cetera, consumer spending doesn't change. It's just the targeting systems, the, the tools change. That doesn't mean your end user changes. So... The money's still there. The share of wallet's still there. You just have to do a good job of still reaching them. And so because your tracking change doesn't mean the actual performance changed. And people really do forget that. Yeah, I think that that statement just by you sort of highlights the nuances that are involved with all these different platforms and how it really is like a part-time job in order to to understand the nuances from all of these different platforms, not just Facebook. And and speaking of which, what how should a business be prepared before they hire a company like yours that is just sort of serve as their outsourced CMO? Yeah, I would say you really want to get the business. I mean, this is really for early stage companies. Just make sure that you have over 10 grand a month to spend on marketing before you hire anyone internally, externally, freelance, whatever you decide to go with. Because if not, as a founder, as an owner of a business, you have to be able to drive that kind of revenue on your own. You have to be able to build your business to a certain point on your own before you go hire out. Because if you don't have enough resources to pay that person 
and have some resources for them to play with for marketing, it's a waste of your money. And the, you know, the little like $500,000 dips into marketing don't go anywhere. They're a waste of your time. They're a waste of your money. You should be focusing on things that can move the needle more than that. So yeah, really, it's about getting your budget in order. Other than that, I wouldn't set the expectation that you have to necessarily prepare in any way because I actually believe most businesses need to focus on having an incredible product or service and leave the other expertise to the people that are experts. I love that. So you you teach them about the three principles from the book, and then you get them to a place where they're earning enough revenue to even afford a, a service like yours. And then that way, it, yeah. it's almost like you're you're fixing the ineff- inefficiencies before you you sort of supercharge your marketing efforts in order to to get to where you want to go. And and as a company, whenever they come to you for these different services, how do you sort of I guess quell the fear that you know I'm outsourcing my marketing to somebody? And it's my voice isn't going to be behind it. Is their voice still behind it? Or is there any fear of losing that whenever you're outsourcing? No, because we're we're working collaboratively. Like we're not just like, thanks, we're gonna go work in a vacuum and never tell you what we're doing. Like it's it's we we try to model ourselves like working as with employees as much as possible. Mm. So whether you have the person sitting, I mean, at this point with most businesses, there's literally no difference. They're not sitting in your office either way. So at this point, you have basically fractional experts in different verticals that have tons of experience, tons of insight into what's going on in your industry and across the board on these platforms. And they're coming to you with their expertise. And then we need your expertise as well. You're the passionate founder or the head of marketing or whatever it is that we're working with at that company that's going to know a lot more detail about the individual business. And that collaboration is really what's critical. So we're not just going to run with it on our own unless they literally have nothing. Sometimes we will be the ones that come up with that messaging and that positioning. But if that already exists and it's good, then we're going to run with what you have. Now, now switching gears a little bit from the company aspect and into your personal sort of work week as an entrepreneur, what does that work week look like for you? What are you prioritizing? Because as an author, as you know, you're trying to get the brand out there, you're trying to get the book out there, which I mean, you've already done an incredible job of that. But what does your day look like versus your week? What are you prioritizing? Yeah, it's it's been consistent for a few years now that about a third of my time is on the promotional side of the business. So waving the flag, beating the drum, the book, being on podcasts, you know, TV, all these different things. That's about a third of my time. About a third of my time is spent on expansion of the business. So M&A, we've bought nine companies at this point at Hawk. We launched our vent, second venture fund, a $25 million fund, soon to be 50. Uh, we launched Hawk Capital, which is uh, actually financing our clients and helping them with... Uh, working capital loans. And, you know, we have a lot of other things coming down the pike that how do we expand off of what we've already created? So that's about a third promotional, a third expansion, and a third strategic with my team. I have a great executive team, but I spend a lot of time with them thinking through the, you know, sort of playing whack-a-mole with the new problems of the business. As we grow, there's always something new. And so now, thankfully, I have a great team that I go to that specific touch point of like, hey, this is broken. Here's the point that's person that's responsible. Let's work together on how to fix it. And so there's a lot of that as well. So third strategic, a third expansion, a third promotional. So, I mean, it sounds like you guys are already like in a, in a, in a place where like business is doing very well. But what about for the companies that are, you know, a, a lot of logistics and freight companies, they're lucky to even have one person. They're, they're very high revenue, uh, low, uh, you know, probably mid, yeah. mid-level margins. But for a lot of them, they don't really have anybody that's in charge of their marketing. What, what, advice would you give to those folks who are wanting to get started with marketing, but just unsure of where to start? Yeah, I mean, I I don't mean to be 
heard <laughs> about it, but read the book. I mean, that was the idea. That yeah. it's funny. I got one. I finally got a one one star review on it. It's like, what is this? This is like marketing one hundred and one. It's like, yeah, that that was what it was supposed to be. It's like, here's how marketing works. Like that. Thank you for the bad review. That's what it literally says on the back of the cover. Um, so yeah, the idea is it's a quick read, and here's how you can understand marketing. So I'd say initially get some of the stuff going yourself, and then you know, marketing should pay for itself. Now you have to have a business that can withstand that and low margins are tight. And I know the logistics business, my dad came from the trucking business and watched it. So uh, there are definitely tighter margins, but there are also things you can do that are efficient. And there are probably ways to look at marketing a little differently than you would in in like an e-commerce or software company or a growth stage company, but still find ways to drive new customers, keep your existing customers through marketing. There's a lot of things that are probably pretty simple that, again, you could probably pull from the book. We also do free uh, consultations, free audits of marketing to just give feedback to companies and help them out along the way in what you could be doing that could help you out. That's awesome. I, I, I love all of that. Great insight, great perspective. Eric, where can folks follow more of your work, buy the book, all that good stuff? Yeah, books available anywhere, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, etc. So the Hawk Method. And then uh, I'm on every social channel at or slash Eric Huberman. And if you wanted to get a free consultation, just hawkmedia.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes just to make it super easy for, for the lazy folks like myself out there. So thank you again, Eric, for coming on the show. Great perspective, great insight. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, we're closing out this show. No pre-recorded interviews. This is our first show back, I think, of the new year. It might be our second show back of the new year we are, where we actually have a full live show instead of the pre-recorded interviews, which are great. But it's always nice to sort of get the feet wet again with a full live show. And as we sort of round out the end of this show, I wanted to you know, give a little bit of insight because I found this story that is just fascinating to me of when folks see something online or they get you know, really frustrated or the, the, the petty comes out in them. And if you're shopping for furniture right now or anytime in the near future, because I'm always looking for, you know, stories that not only are a little bit petty, but also have a supply chain angle to them. This is the one for you. Because if you are planning on budgeting for future furniture purchases, you've probably noticed a couple different brands that are, you know, uh, maybe look a little bit similar as the, you know, the high end versus the low end. Uh, And so I got a good one today because Meet the Revenge website created by Redditor L. Gabraham. I I think that's how you pronounce his last name or L.G. Abraham, not Gabraham. He said, I got tired of stores selling the same thing, but from a different name to charge you more. So I built a site that connects exact terms, even if renamed wherever you can find them. There are no affiliates, just a revenge product project and a dream. And to say he said the reason that he did this, that he built this site, because it's actually a beautiful website that he bought a coffee table from Urban Outfitters for $400 more than it was at Home Depot. And from the this, if you're looking at the screen, you can actually see the site. It's very uh, kind of Pinterest-esque where it has all of the different photos of all of the different furniture and it lists out the exact place of where you can buy them, what it's listed at, and then the alternative places where you can purchase those same items. So think like a, you know, a, a very expensive like furniture retailer. I'm not going to name any names here because they're already on the screen, uh, but a very expensive furniture retailer where you can find, you know, a very, a very close, almost exact 
probably exact product on a different website where you wouldn't even really think to go and shop for furniture. So for his specific example, he bought a coffee table from Urban Outfitters for $400. That was $200 at Home Depot. So because he was so mad about that, he built this site. It's called Spoken.io. And it, it's I, I think that it is a brilliant idea. And I love it when people take that perspective or take that lens of, of seeing a problem in the marketplace and just solving it for you know a vast amount of people and like I said he did this there's he's not making money off of this site not yet he probably will make some money off of it in the future if it takes off which I think a site like this would take off in the future um, but he's not making any money off affiliates or any kind of you know ad deals or anything like that it's just a petty project that he did it for revenge in order to save other people some money that he wasn't able to save himself so check it out spoken.io if you're in the furniture market now or in the future I think it's also a, a you know a really good play on just seeing a problem in the marketplace and creating a solution to fix it. Now, as we close out this week's show, it's the last day in March. And that means it's the last day for you to take advantage of saving some money because we just talked about saving some money on your furniture. Now save some money on your conference tickets for the future of supply chain that's coming up in May. I think it's May 9th to the 10th over in Arkansas. It's at the Rogers Convention Center, Freightways Future of Supply Chain. If you're watching the screen right now, you're seeing all the fancy graphics for it. So if you the graphics, typically with a conference, if the graphics look good, the conference is going to be even better. And as someone who has attended several different FreightWaves conferences in the past, I cannot recommend going to these conferences more because it is such a fun experience. It's, I think it's the first time, yeah, the first time in two years that the FreightWaves community itself will be back together in person. So you can go and register for the event and you can see all of the speakers that they've announced, which has been a ton of speakers already. It's over at live.freightwaves.com. And as you know, for my fellow podcasters out here, since we got a couple more minutes, I just wanted to drop a couple news nuggets because um, if you're a fan of podcasting, you're probably fascinated, you know, by where the really the industry is going nowadays. And a couple new announcements from this week is updating to the podcasting world. Spotify is testing a new discovery tool. And while you have to have a certain URL in order to check it out, you can just go to Twitter and, and search for you know Spotify podcast and it should pop up. But it's a specific URL that you paste inside of Spotify and it helps with the problem of discoverability. That's the biggest issue for a lot of podcasters is that it's very difficult to discover a new podcast that you might like. You typically only find out a podcast that you really want to listen to through word of mouth. And then you might give that show a chance. And so what Spotify is working on is they are working on a new discoverability tool. I was trying it out this morning and I already saved a couple episodes to my playlist. Hopefully Spotify fixes the actual functionality of the podcasting platform because it's miserable to listen to a podcast on Spotify. They drop off, they lose your place of where you're listening to a show. It's very frustrating. So I only listen to certain shows on Spotify. Everything else is over in Overcast. And But that could be the new Spotify discoverability tool should be really, really cool for podcasters out there to get your episodes, not just from a podcast level discoverability, but from an episode discoverability. So if somebody is listening to one episode, then possibly your episode would pop up right after that if it's related in some way. So definitely check that out. Search for Twitter in order to find that exact... It's not really a link. It's like some text that you have to enter into Spotify in order to find it. They sort of made it a little difficult. Um, and then the other one that I wanted to mention is YouTube is adding podcasts soon via RSS feeds. So 
there's lots of growth here in the podcasting space, especially as more companies are taking a, a greater focus and a greater ownership of the platforms that they already have, not just Spotify, not just YouTube, but Apple as well, making a bunch of changes to their site. So in order to encourage more folks, more folks to listen, uh, more folks to subscribe and share and just make the overall experience easier for not only listeners, but for creators as well and how you distribute your show and hopefully get it out to the masses. So thank you guys all so much for tuning into this week's show. We will be back next week, Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with a brand new show, all live, all you know, fresh content for you guys to enjoy. Once again, my name is Blythe Burnley. You can find more of my work over at digitaldispatch.io. It's all my social media channels, all that good stuff. But until then, we'll see you right back here next Tuesday.